if I'm holding an offense over someone, is my righteous anger actually righteous? Or is this really just me wanting to be angry about something? In today's cancel culture, it's so easy to judge everyone else, my hands up on this too, and not extend the grace that has been extended to you in the Bible, right? Well, that's uh, kind of the idea behind the book, Reckless Grace, written by Bill Vanderbush and Britt Eaton, talks about the theological and practical applications of God's reckless grace. People are walking away from us, from the church, from Jesus Christ, because they have no idea who he really is. And we believe that 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 truth is that folks just have not tapped into the real grace that God has extended to us. So this book unpacks that in a a very unique and different way. Uh, And it positions grace as a, a powerful tool that the church can use to bring folks to Christ and bring forth and usher in the revival that we all want to see. So let's go here. You know, one of the big things about grace is, and you hear in this in the Bible, and you, you unpack this a little bit more, you know, loving our enemies. You say that's actually a, a false construct. Why is that? Yeah, so the the way that uh, the Lord even talks about enemies in the Bible, like think about the context when Jesus is talking about loving your enemies. He's talking about Rome. He's talking about these powers and these principalities. Even when we're looking at the truth that the Lord is preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies, there's a reason that he's doing that. And it's probably not what we think. What we might want to believe as we're clinging to our offenses in a day-to-day world is that the Lord is preparing that table to put us in a position of authority or in a position of uh, being better than our enemy. That's in fact not what's happening at all. The Lord is preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies so that we can invite them to the table and our enemy might become our brother. We have so, there's so much divisiveness, so much division in the world right now. Uh, All you have to do is jump on Facebook feed for five minutes today and you, you can't help but get offended. It's almost impossible not to do it. But those people that we have labeled our enemies are in fact the very ones that Christ prayed we would be one with as he is one with the Father. So the intimacy that's already been declared over us as all of humanity, that is something powerful that I believe the church has not yet tapped into. We have yet to invite the world into the true gift of grace that Jesus has offered to us. So in the midst of all of this, enemy is a false construct because we were never meant to be at odds with one another. We're meant to be one. And I think another thing, uh, again, if you have had a faith for a long time, you know, you talk about a, a definition of grace that might be a little different than we think. And then also you unpack John three sixteen and how that shows how God initiates grace. too. I mean, that's something that everybody knows. I mean, everybody knows John three sixteen, but how does that uh, show how God initiates grace with us? Yeah, well, John 3, 16, just the the very fact that it takes nothing but belief in Christ to receive the beauty of the grace that he's given. Even more interestingly, one of the the key verses for the book is John 20, 23. Um, This is probably one of the most radical lines of scripture people might ever read. It's so bizarre. In fact, some people just skim over it because they're like, I'm not sure I can fully wrap my brain around that. I don't know if that's what I I think it means. It says, uh, this is after... Uh, the crucifixion after Jesus has risen from the dead, he's standing before his disciples. He, he breathes on them. There are only two times in the Bible that, that God actually breathes on man. One is in Genesis in the creation account with Adam. And one is Jesus in, in a little hidden room with his disciples after the resurrection. And he says to them, 
uh, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says the weirdest thing in John 20, 23. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And it's like, what? What just happened? Did Jesus just give us authority in this realm to forgive sins. And while we are, this is certainly not a deification of man. God is the author and the, the origin of grace. We are not the people who are the source of grace. God is that source. But as conduits with the Holy Spirit living in us in this realm, we have a responsibility to carry forth the grace of God in a very new way. That mandate that he gave to the disciples all those years ago, that applies to us. And if the world does not know that it's loved and forgiven, it's going to be on us. We're going to stand account for that one day. So it gets critically important. And this, this whole concept of being given a, you know, authority to carry forth grace in this realm in Jesus' name, it ties into Matthew 6.14. If you forgive the sins, of, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. This isn't some sort of divine ultimatum. Although I don't know, I take the, I take the word pretty literally, <laughs> so I have to ask my myself and my heart really carefully if I'm holding an offense over someone. Is my righteous anger actually righteous, or is this really just me wanting to be angry about something? The word never the word never says that it's a sin to be angry, but it does say say that we're not to sin in that anger. Understanding grace as Jesus released it over over the disciples and releases it over us today, it allows us to carry forth grace even in times when we feel really angry and really irritated at our, our brother, our sister, or just our coworker, anybody that we might run into today, the barista who messed up my coffee order, the guy who caught me off in traffic, or in more severe cases, the person who meant genuine harm against me, against my family, those who slander us, those who persecute and abuse us. God's grace really is for all. When Jesus died on the cross, he really did die for the sin of all. We tend to forget that. We, we, we use words that are very real, like chosen and set apart and whatever else. But what we've done with that information is we've created these cities on a hill that are elitist country clubs. We have yet to go into the city to let broken sinners know, do you know the grace that's already been released to you? Do you know what's accessible to you today? All you have to do is say yes to that. Th that's a response. That, that idea of repentance, we unpack this a little bit in the book. Um, the idea of repentance is not penance. Even the root Latin word comes from the word uh, penitence, which is an, you know, a, a Roman Catholic tradition, but it, it became something very dark. Um, right after the 40s and 50s, it became this thing where we, we began to actually believe that we needed to earn our salvation by somehow making amends for the things that we did or trying to earn back favor of God. Grace is a gift that's been given to us for free. All we need to do is say yes to that. The beauty of that washes over you and that grace will move you to that genuine repentance that is so necessary in order to stand before a holy God and believe that you're loved, to believe that you're his child, to believe you have access to the full throne room of heaven because of what Jesus did. It's a powerful thing. And I don't think I heard it preached until I was in my 30s. That's wild. I'll be 40 this December. I, it, this is still new to me. The, the beauty of it is, though, Andy, when it all comes down, 
God is just so much better than I ever thought he was. There's truth of the word, but as we continue to dig in, God continues to reveal himself in and through scripture. And when we see things through new eyes, when we read a passage like John 3, 16 or John 20, 23, or even Matthew 6, 14 and 15, we've heard these, these passages probably hundreds of times in our life, but the Holy Spirit has the ability to communicate to you fresh and new through the lens of what's happening right now. God is still alive. He's still on the throne and he's still speaking to us if we would have hearts to listen. So I think uh, one thing that's challenging, and you talk about this in the book too, that the most common barrier to receiving God's gift of grace is it's, it's, it's you and I, right? It's, it's us getting in the way of ourselves and receiving that grace. Yeah. And yep. Talk about, you know, you, you shared this a little bit, you know, accepting that grace, but you know, what's that first step for someone? You know, it's easy to say, all right, accept that grace. It's yours. Yeah. Take it. But, but what is that first step <laughs> for yeah. someone to say, all right, I am going to actually accept that and understand that? Absolutely. So grace is, the, the process can be kind of complicated, but we've made it as simple as possible. I, um, there is a, a nonlinear cyclical process that you can really walk through with grace that I think is going to be helpful to readers as they pick up this, this work. There, the book is divided into three sections. The first one is the teaching on grace. This was a message that I heard my co-author Bill Vanderbush speak probably in 2013, something like that. And the first time that I heard him preach this message on grace, I was wildly offended by it. I did not know what to do with it. It seemed too greasy of grace for me. I wasn't prepared for it. And the biggest reason for that was I was in a position in life where the mounting offenses against me, the perceived offenses against me were so great. I could not imagine releasing grace over somebody in my own strength to the level that, that Bill was talking about. So I, I just rejected the message at first. And then over the course of the next few years, the Lord kept inviting me into opportunities and situations where he wanted to flip my theology on its head. He wanted to show me how present he was, even in those moments where I felt attacked and I felt slandered and I felt, you know, that there were these grave offenses against me. The Lord was showing me opportunities to not only be his hands and feet in this realm, but, but to invite him into deeper levels of intimacy in my life. So that, that grace message unpacked in the first section. That second section is where things get highly practical and applicable. This is where we talk about grace as a fourfold process. First of all, first step, you have to believe it's true. (laughs) If you don't believe what Jesus said in John 20, 23 is true, this isn't the book for you. But if you do believe that the word is, it's the inspired word of God, if you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, you'll have to say, well, even if I don't know what to do with that right now, I believe this is true. Believing it is the first step. Receiving it is that second step. This can be the most difficult thing, not just because of the difficulty of releasing grace over people who are are, are offending you, but we struggle to receive 
grace for the things that we have personally done. They may be things that we're ashamed of from our past, things that maybe we've never told anybody before, but we know deep down, God knows. If we can't receive grace over ourselves, or if we even take on some sort of false humility and saying, oh, well, maybe God can forgive me, but I could never forgive myself. It's actually quite blasphemous. It's, it's going against what we know to be true of God. And so the question we must continually be asking ourselves is, is there any situation where the God of the universe, based on his word, says he will not release grace? Is there anything our loving Heavenly Father would not forgive? And if I struggle to find anything, I, I truly do. I truly do. There, there are certainly things like righteous anger. There is certainly judgment that will one day come. But there is no sin that the Father won't forgive. And if that's true, why would I be holding grace or be withholding grace from anyone else? Or why would I be withholding it from myself? It's a, it's a constant realignment into deciding I'm going to agree with what God says about this, whether my heart and my head can catch up with it in the moment or not. It's partnering with him and saying, God, I believe, help my unbelief, just, to, just that, that faithful cry to him and say, just unpack this for me, help me understand. So receiving it is step two. Step three, once you receive that grace, it's so good, trust me, you're gonna spend the rest of your life wanting to give it away. You can't give away what you don't have, but once you receive it, the beauty of it, once you begin to see the truth about your identity as a beloved child, once you know just how loved and forgiven you are, you want everybody else to know. You want them to know. And so even when there is a real egregious offense against you, when somebody does something that is so harmful or so hurtful, you can partner with the Lord in releasing it and say, God, I'm hurt right now, or I'm seeing something that is unjust, or I'm seeing something that, that I know grieves your heart. Help me look for anything to honor in an individual so that I can honor them and then release your grace over them from my heart. We, we uh, and again, we are not God. This is not a deification of man, but we are meant to be the hands and feet of the Father. We carry as temples of the Holy Spirit, we carry God in us when we walk through and have interactions with people throughout the day. So it's not about what we think is right and just. Grace by definition is unmerited favor. One of the biggest arguments we get about, about the idea of reckless grace of like, oh, well, isn't that just giving people a pass? Oh, come on. It's way more than giving people a pass. It's unmerited favor that we're handing out. This is what God is doing. And as much as it does not make sense within our earthly constructs and understanding, we're being invited to participate in a divine release of grace over humanity, the likes of which it has never been seen. So that's releasing it. Step three. And let me tell you, once you start to release the beauty of that reckless grace that's been given to you, once you start to see people's hearts being transformed, not by how good you are, how kind and generous you are for forgiving them, they will encounter the living God in and through you. And once you start to see that, you're going to want to repeat that whole process again. And that's step four, repeat. No matter how good you think you get at grace giving, you will always be humbled to a point where you realize, Lord, no matter how much grace I've received from you, I know there's more. I know there's more to receive. And I know 
goodness gracious, I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling just like anybody else is. I need God's grace on the daily. I am desperate for it. And I could not walk out this process of believing, receiving, uh, releasing, and repeating with with reckless grace if I was not daily receiving that grace from the Father to be able to give out in the overflow to people who desperately need that same grace from him. So there it is. It's the four-step process. Now, I think one thing, Britt, uh, you talk about in the book, uh, I, I think people will listen to this and they'll think, uh, well, how am I supposed to release God's grace to those people <laughs> that have really caused a lot of pain in my life? And maybe that yeah. person that, that if I were, I had a toxic relationship with them, I need mm-hmm. to have boundaries. Where is, where's grace and boundaries and where's that happy medium? This was one of the key challenges that Bill and I worked through when I first heard the message. And I, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think back to why it was that I rejected this message at the very beginning. And it, it felt too hard. It felt too hard to be able to do that in my own strength. I wasn't confident that I could forgive people who had really hurt me in ways that, you know, by all biblical definition, there was certainly reason for righteous anger. In the midst of all of that, the Lord was inviting me into a place of saying, do you want to see my grace released over humanity? My heart says, yes, of course I want to see that even for those people that I might want to call, I might be tempted to call my enemy. Those people who have genuinely harmed me, those people who have abused me, what grace is not is telling people that their behavior toward you was okay. We are are not giving people a pass in that way. We are instead saying from our heart's position, you may not be sorry, you might do it again if you were given the opportunity. But I believe as a carrier of the Holy Spirit, as someone God is living in me, I believe it is my responsibility to release grace over you. I'm not going to hold this offense against you any longer. That is not a breakdown of a boundary. And here's why. When you release that grace over someone, you may not do it face to face. You may not do it in a way that the individual will ever even actually hear you utter the words. We we walk through in the second part of the book, we have a very practical application section where we encourage people to write a lament. And there's a whole book on it in the Bible called Lamentations. This is when people have walked through, you know, egregious offenses against them, things that are so horrible. And they've been, Book of Lamentations shows us that we have permission to cry out to God in our anger and our frustration to name the offenses against us so that we can count the costs of releasing reckless grace over people. We certainly cannot release grace in our own strengths. It is too difficult. And as human beings, We're not wired to do it, but by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, by God himself wanting to release grace over all of humanity, even those people we hate, even people like Saul, even people like King David when he was rebelling, like these people, God had every reason to withhold grace from them. He did not have to give them this unmerited favor, but we've been invited to participate in this. So there's there's another book that I read 
while we were writing this book, um, there's a, a book called Boundaries. It's an old one by Henry Cloud. That book is an excellent companion piece. <laughs> I know I'm like throwing out a, an advertisement for Henry Cloud in the midst of this. Understanding how to create healthy boundaries between you and someone who has wronged you is incredibly important. If you, if you have been abused, if you have been you know, put in a situation where an egregious offense has been made against you, you may not be called to a place of full reconciliation with the individual. What we really are seeking out with Reckless Grace is the idea of an individual being restored, about them encountering God's grace, having it transform their heart and having them be moved to a place of repentance, just like Saul was before he became Paul. He was one of the greatest persecutors of Christians. And then he died for his Christian faith at the end because it was such a profound shift. We understand that he or she who has been forgiven so much is, has much more capacity to love much and to release grace much. So even if we are not trying to get there, I, I will be honest, like there are places where, this gets gray and it gets complicated. You know, if, in cases of infidelity, there are marriages that cannot be restored. And it's not because God isn't giving opportunity for grace to be released over both parties, but it definitely takes two parties to restore a marriage. That does not mean that there cannot be forgiveness that can come out of a situation like that. And it also doesn't mean that God is not so active in working and moving in the situation to completely restore lives in a way that we might not have expected. So releasing grace toward those who you really don't want to release grace to because you're angry. <laughs> These are the places where God is calling us to. This is like, this is like spiritual boot camp. We are literally working out those grace muscles because goodness, if you can release grace over your, your gravest offender, how much easier will it be to live a lifestyle of grace where you can, you can speak the truth of the father's heart over people, regardless of their circumstance, no matter how far gone that little lost sheep is, they need to know how loved they are, how God is continually running after them, chasing them down. Our enemy is in fact our brother. They just don't know it yet. And so whether or not physical actual reconciliation ever happens, we are still responsible to be ambassadors of grace in this realm, to release it over people, not just because secular psychologists say it's a good idea, but because the word says we are meant to usher in God's reckless grace. We're meant to carry it forward. So your daughter was cute and wonderful and full of joy, and then she became a teenager, and now you can't seem to see eye to eye with her with anything. Well, next week is for you then. Deborah Ann Davis is going to be on the 30 Second Book Club talking about her new book, How to Keep Your Daughter from Slamming the Door. Yeah, it's possible. <laughs>